a few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Nepal and stay in Kathmandu. And while there with missionaries, we, we went on a trek in the Himalayan uh, foothills. Uh, and one night we, we climbed uh, a mountain in complete darkness. We could only w- find our way along the trek with uh, a head torch. And when on the summit, the lights were switched off and we looked up into the cloudless sky. I had never seen such a sky. Nor have I seen one like that since. The stars were numerous. Thousands stretched across the vast sky. And every time I think of it, I recall Genesis chapter 15. Now, for anyone visiting us today or or tuning in online for the first time, we in Hamilton Road have been considering the life of Abraham. And so I recap the the past two weeks. In Genesis 15, Abram had a vision. The Lord spoke to him, and despite Abram and Sarai, his wife, not being able to have a child, the Lord declares Abraham will have an heir, a son. And the Lord tells Abram to look up into the sky, count the stars, And he tells him, so your offspring will be. Astonishing. Astonishing. In chapter 16, years had passed. No child was born. Would there ever be? Abram was in his 80s. And Sarah in her 70s. Sarah could see no option but for a slave maid. Hagar, to have a son with Abram, and Ishmael was born. It wasn't a happy arrangement. And now in Genesis 17, 13 years had passed, and Ishmael was entering his teenage years. Surely Abram had accepted over the years of his praying for Ishmael, of his grooming of his son to take on his inheritance, Surely Ishmael is the heir God had chosen. They had been through all the ups and downs of rearing a boy, and it wasn't easy. He was a difficult child. He was to turn into a donkey of a man and potentially hostile to everyone. We read this in chapter 16, verses 11 to 12. And now, first of all, in Genesis 17, we read of the Lord visits Abram again. Abram experiences another theophany at the age of 99. The Lord appeared and said, I am the Lord Almighty. And if you look at your footnote on Genesis 17 there in in the Bible available to you, you'll see the footnote, El Shaddai appeared. And El Shaddai was the Almighty. El Shaddai is God who reveals himself as all-powerful, omnipotent, supreme in power, as God who was able to do the impossible. 
And the Lord makes a covenant with Abram. We read in verse 2, I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram was now 99. Sarah was 90. How could this be? Sarah was past childbearing age and Abram was as good as dead. We read in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 12, commenting on this, <coughs> it refers to his old age and his, the state of affairs for him. His funeral plans were all but signed off. But God is the God of the impossible. I wonder how you respond to this. Can we surely believe this? When we consider what we have experienced in life, when we've hoped for things that have never happened, when we have prayed for blessing, maybe prayed for a child, prayed for the healing of a child, or prayed for a family member who is hostile to the Christian faith, for family members lost in their narcissistic style of life, or maybe personally for the deliverance from an addiction or a sin that haunts you. God is the God of the impossible. I often remember, I often remember a quote from the, the late Stuart Briscoe, a renowned preacher who, who died last year in the United States. He said this, the Christian life begins easy, turns difficult, and finally becomes impossible. The good news is God does the impossible. That's his business. We must never be surprised of what God can do as we live in the assurance that as we walk faithfully with our God and as his grace helps us to live blamelessly. Do you get this in verse 1? A faithful life is blessed. All things are possible with God. And in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, and verse 27, we read the words of Jesus, who said, all things are possible with God. And we read, Abram fell face down. This was surely a moment of worship. He was overwhelmed by the, the presence of El Shaddai, humbled and amazed at God's grace. Now, I'll refer to Romans 4 occasionally. And first, consider Romans 4 and 19, where we read, Without weakening in his faith, this is Abram, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. 
being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This was a moment of worship when God spoke and delivered his promise. When we consider God's promises and the supreme promise of our salvation, we too must fall on our knees, humbled by God's grace. I had a conversation recently with some friends about gesticulating in worship. There was reference to how some people lift their hands in worship. And one said she would like to be able to have the freedom to do so. Yes, we agreed there are times when one feels like raising their arms, but, but we are inhibited. And, and I agreed as a dead, hard Presbyterian, I sometimes do raise my hands, but never above my shoulders. But how often do we fall on our face? Now, maybe not literally, but surely emotionally, we bow down before God under the overwhelming nature of the acceptance of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice for our salvation on the cross. Praise God. Such a demonstration of God's grace, which we never deserve. We were singing that. We don't deserve God's grace. But surely it moves us to bow the head, to symbolically, if not literally, to fall down in repentance. Isn't that so? Under God's grace, we bow humbly in the acceptance of his love, that unconditional love, that grace demonstrated on the cross. We see, secondly, here in this chapter, the Lord extends his promise. Genesis 17, verse 4. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. And in verses 3 to 8, how many times do we read the first person related to God? If you count through those verses, you'll find six or seven. According to the translation, you are reading. And we read there, God says, I have made you a father. God says, I will make you very faithful. God says, I will make nations of you. And verse seven, verses eight, twice, God says, I will. The covenant God makes is totally unilateral. It is initiated by God, delivered by God. There is no negotiating with God. There are no conditions attached. We don't bargain with God. Abraham attempted a negotiation in verse 18. He said, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. But there is no negotiation. God's promise 
is a promise of grace. There's nothing from our perspective that merits his grace. If a covenant with God depended on us and our promises, it would never be established. Never. We are undeserving. God made his covenant with Abraham. It involved all that God would do. It was his will, and God would do it. Verse 5. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Abram was to be no longer called Abram. The name Abram meant exalted father. He was hardly exalted as he and Sarah never had a child. His new name is Abraham, father of many. Potentially, he was to be the father of many. And again, turning to Romans 4, we read in verse 16, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. He's to be the father of many, Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. And note this, he is the father of us all. Now, we recognize today that Abraham is claimed by different faiths and cultures to be their father. But spiritually, and confirmed by Paul in Romans, he is the father of our faith. Verse 17, he is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. He is father Abraham to us who believe. We are participating in the family of Abraham, the extension of the covenant of the to New Testament covenant believers, and to the family of the church. Those who profess Jesus are the descendants God promised Abraham. Let me see thirdly, the Lord provides a reminder or a sign. In verse 9. As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. Now, this wasn't a condition being introduced, but an unconditional response to the covenant. By the grace of God, Abraham and his descendants shall keep the covenant. They will honor the covenant. And to remind them of the commitment to the covenant, God provides a sign and it's circumcision. Every male, every boy born, every male slave, every national will be circumcised of the flesh. Now you may remember that Sarah's idea of Hagar being a surrogate wasn't entirely isolated as this was a practice throughout the region and practiced by various cultures and peoples. Circumcision was widely practiced as a ritual also. Circumcision was being adopted 
as a sign of God's covenant. Circumcision being introduced by God as a sign was an act of faith. It was a spiritual rite, symbolizing and honoring the relationship God was forming with Abraham and his descendants, symbolizing the walk of faith. Cutting of the flesh was excluding a reliance on fleshly works, but on God's grace. Again, Paul sums it up in Romans chapter 2 and verse 28. A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. It is circumcision of the heart that honors God's covenant a heart surrendered to God, and we believe a heart committed to Jesus. In Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6, we read, the Lord our God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. And we believe the Abrahamic covenant is the forerunner of the New Testament covenant. And the sign of the New Testament covenant and admission to the body of Jesus Christ is baptism, a sign conducted for both male and female. We read in Colossians chapter 2, 11 to 12, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was not of when you were circumcised, sorry, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. You see, an inner circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. And having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And Peter preached such a baptism on the day of Pentecost. We read there from this sermon, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. See, baptism is the sign, just as circumcision was the sign of God's covenant and a sign of the covenant for infants. In verse 12, for the household and all within the extended community of faith. And so, you know, we we accept that this sign of the new covenant, New Testament covenant, is baptism. And it is to include our children. Children are promised the blessing of God's grace within the Christian family. Now, can I make a a comment here? It seems to me that there are Christian parents within our Reformed faith of Presbyterianism who are neglecting 
the means of grace. Just two weeks ago, uh, Florence and I attended the baptism of our grandchild. It was a significant, significantly special occasion to have our daughter and son-in-law commit to the nurturing of their child in their faith. A joyful event. And moving for grandparents to see. And some of you know well what I refer to. But as we reflected on the occasion, we recognized also that within our family circle, that quite a few of our nephews and nieces who are believers haven't had their children baptized. Look, in light of what we have been studying this morning, I want to emphasize the significance of the sign of God's grace for the children of believing parents. Baptism is the sign of God's covenantal promise to you and your offspring, as with Abraham. Your child is embraced by God within the promise of grace. Your nurturing of your child and your prayer is a grace of God. You're teaching a blessing of God's grace. Your example, the model of grace. The extended family, the, the community of grace and your church, the bearers of grace. Now we are not saying baptism saves a child. The covenant is that the child can come to a saving faith and personal commitment to Jesus. The family and church are committed to the nurturing and mentoring of the child to that day. We all are to be prayerful and dedicated to seeing our children come to know Jesus. And that is the emphasis of this church. And then fourthly and finally, the Lord is always true to his word. Sarai was 90, we read, not the age to expect the birth of a boy. Verse 15, God said her name was to be Sarah, which means princess. The princess was to have a baby, and his name is to be Isaac, which means he laughs. And when Abraham heard this, he fell down a second time and he laughed. The whole thing is hilarious. Will a son be born to a hundred-year-old man? It's all so laughable. But God said, as you read there, God said, yes, yes, your wife Sarah will bear you a son. Well, could it, could it be that the, the laugh of doubt be turned into a laugh of joy? What joy it is to hear of the conceiving of a child. And when the Lord says yes in verse 19, what he says happens. He does the impossible. 
Soon we will be reading the, the gospel of the incarnation. Soon we'll be drawing near to, we're drawing near to Christmas. And we remember there the, the angel Gabriel visited Mary to tell she would give birth to a son. And this was to be a, a virgin birth. What God promised happened. Jesus was born to Mary, a savior of the world. See, God does the impossible. What he promises, he fulfills. And as we bow down, as we bow down to his grace, as we surrender our circumcised heart to him, as we accept the sign of God's grace and believe what he has promised, we enter into a new covenant. For by grace we are saved through faith. It is not of anything we boast of, but as a gift of God. Such a promise of faith is entirely God's initiative, God's doing, unconditional, and ours to believe. Do you believe this? Have you a heart that, a circumcised heart, a heart given to Jesus Christ, the Lord who demonstrated God's grace upon the cross and died for you and for me? Amen. Let us bow together in prayer. Yes, again, O oh Lord, we say it only by grace can we enter. And Father, we praise and thank you for your promise, that glorious promise, that faithful promise, that unending promise, that covenant with your people, that covenant of grace. And we thank you, O gracious God, for that promise of our salvation in Jesus Christ as we buy repentant before you, as we open up our lives to your spirit, and as we buy humbly, yes, buying the head, even falling before you, O Lord, in repentance, we thank you for that gift of salvation eternal, promised and fulfilled for those who believe. Amen.